We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part interview. The first part was released last week in our previous episode of Encountering Silence. And I'm sorry to hear about the pushback, although knowing what I know about the church, I'm not surprised. But you really did find your voice after that. I'm I'm sure you are familiar with Sue Monk Kidd. And I think about her book, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, which in many ways was similar to your book, Leaving Church. And, And I remember reading that. And as somebody who is very deeply committed to feminine expressions of the divine, I found her book so beautiful. But I remember thinking, where is she going to go from here? I don't know that Guidepost is going to want to publish her anymore. And so she moved into fiction. But you have really retained that voice of kind of inspirational nonfiction, but now it's like the world is your parish. So um, was that kind of part of the grand plan or did you just simply see yourself as a humble college professor? I mean, what was the process for you in leaving church? I loved being a college professor without a PhD. Who let that happen? But it turned <laughs> out that my college, you know, had a few places for people with master's degrees. So that was a complete opening of a door where there was only a wall. But here's how the other books came about was I still traveled a lot and spoke to people and and heard from people in lots of different ways. So I just listened for the questions that came up over and over and over again, so that that pastoral instinct stayed alive, which was, you know, what did I hear more than three times? What did I hear five times? And, and most of the subsequent books, if it, if it rang a bell in me, then I wanted to explore it more like the fear of darkness and, and the fear that always meant something horrible or the idea that, that the divine was only findable in churches, you know, the segregation of the church and the world, all the dualities that Christians have invented that I don't think, <laughs> I think God laughs at. Uh, so, so that's, that's where the voice went. And if you just pay attention, things keep coming up, right? So there's a whole spate of books coming out now on becoming grounded in a suffering creation, you know, a creation that is by its nature silent. I'm right now taken with trees like crazy because they're mute witnesses. They can't run away, right? A tree can't run away. I've got lynching trees in my county. I've got trees that witnessed the Cherokee removal and trees that witnessed the civil war and they're still here and they're half dead. And at any rate, I, uh, so there's a whole spate that, that is very much what I'm leaning into now is kind of the suffering creation and the ways in which to be spiritually grounded, pay attention to the dirt your feet are on, or you're not spiritually grounded. Those sacred silent witnesses, this reminds me of, I'm sure Barbara, you've been to the Redwoods and I remember looking out into 
into the horizon uh, with the sister of uh, the monastery of the Redwoods. And she was telling me how the trees out there are two, 3,000 years old. And just thinking of all the things they've lived through and all the wisdom that they can teach us is just shocking and also brings you to silence. So thank you for sharing that and reminding me of those sacred trees. Mm, my pleasure. If you don't know Belden Lane, but I think you might as an author, but he he has some wonderful books on, he started out with the solace of fierce landscapes. Right. And it was very much about the deserts and mountains. And his latest from Oxford Press starts with his relationship with a hundred year old cottonwood tree. So it sounds like you're ripe for that. Yeah. It's funny because I take this as a sign of grace. Um, my work has been moving. It's in this same direction. I'm uh, in love with trees for the last few years. Um, <laughs> Cassidy's talk of the redwoods. It's one of the most sacred places for me that I've ever been. And Belden Lane, I, I am a college professor as well. And I use Belden Lane in my courses. It's just, uh, it's just brilliant. So I, I appreciate and hear, I, I hear the movement of grace in so many authors that I look up to. And so it's, it's wonderful to hear that we're all kind of drawn to those same kinds of questions. It, it uh, exciting it, it, to feel like there's a wave of uh, thought and creativity around these similar themes. So there's these books and all these wonderful people saying these wonderful things I'm learning from. So, so thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, uh, I'll be a uh, Pentecostal next time instead of an Episcopalian. So I can say it's the spirit, you know, the spirit, <laughs> the spirits on the move and we're tuned into the sound of it, which is all we have. Right. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I want to um, just very briefly make a comment. I think I could be wrong. We, we've recorded, what, 120 episodes now of this podcast. I don't know that we've ever had a guest use the word mute before. Now, I could be wrong. I could just be forgetting, but you've used it more than once, Barbara. And what I love about that is that it comes from the same Greek word that gives us mysticism that mysticism and mute have the same root. And so what you're really drawing out for me at least is the mystery of silence. That, that silence is, is, and I think again, that, that quote I read from Learning to Walk in the Dark points to this, that silence is not just the absence of sound and, and that there is this mystery kind of always encoded in it. And that brings me to another quote from your book, Holy Envy, you talk about what it's like to put your own faith to the test, to really examine your faith. And then you write, sometimes the results are distressing, as when I find the silence of the meditation bench more healing than the words of my favorite psalms, or when I take greater refuge in the Buddhist concept of impermanence than in the Christian assurance of eternal life. Yet this is how I have discovered that I am Christian to the core. And so, you know, I'm curious, Christianity, was it E.M. Forrester who, who said, poor little talkative Christianity, you know, that ours is a very talkative religion. I mean, it's a religion of preaching. It's a religion of the book. It's a religion of theology. And yet, as you alluded, you know, sometimes all the words just seem to go mute. Mm -hmm. 
before the mystery, before the mystery of the silence or the comfort of the silence or the balm of the silence. So I, I'm curious, I guess where I'm going with this is I'm curious to, you know, here we are in March of 2021. What is your relationship with silence like today? And how does silence inform uh, your ongoing work as a speaker and a writer, but also just as a Barbara, you know, as somebody living up in North Georgia? <laughs> just as a Barbara. I have to locate geographically and chronologically. So I'm in my, let's put it this way, the last year of my 60s, and I live on 165 acres, really nine miles from the largest town of 1,500 people. So that has a lot to do with the role silence plays in my everyday because it would not be the same if I were still in Atlanta in my 40s. So I, I always want to tag these answers and say they're not general answers. They're not universal answers. They're very fingerprinted. Um, but my company on the farm where I live is largely creaturely. It's largely guinea hens, roosters, chickens, horses, dogs, cats, foxes, turkeys, black bear or two from time to time. Um, so I'm in a lot of silence all day long. Um, intentional silence when I wake. There's a lot of silent meandering I do, whether it's uh, praying with and for people I love or just being quiet. Um, feeding the animals is usually largely silent, but so gratifying. Um, right now I'm digging a lot because I've got to get the bulbs in fast. They're all reaching out of their bags with these green fingers. They want to be planted. And I've and also driving because I do have to drive a ways to get places. And I found the minute I turn the radio off, my whole body relaxes. I just noticed that. So now I do a lot of silent driving and it's become almost a habit of choosing. The practice is to choose it when I can. And the great exception is cooking, where I listen to murder mysteries and chop. So right now it's Walter Mosley down the river unto the sea. Isn't he great? Yeah. He's wonderful. Especially you are a audio. woman after my own heart. Murder <laughs> mysteries are my jam. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. I got to go with it too. Okay. So, uh, so I don't sit around in my habit all day long <laughs> and hum, <laughs> but there is a lot of silence built into where I live and it's very welcome though. It's, it's busy, full silence. It's not at all, you know, most people's imagination of no sound. Well, and I have to admit Guinea hens are not exactly um, silent creatures. Ooh. They can, they can get a racket going. So um but it's, you know, but the sound of nature, isn't it interesting that we categorize that as silence? It's true. Um, we, we released an episode just a few weeks ago that was just all nature sounds, all ambient nature recordings. And, and the whole idea was listen for the silence in the midst of the waterfall or in the midst of the birds singing, or, you know. And, and I think that that is this attitude that I think so many of us hold. And I want to jump in here because I think this is the connection Carl just helped me make. I think when I was saying before that I thought your work was very apophatic and cataphatic together, I think that's here. I think when I read your words and hear you preach, I feel like it's like listening to the birds. <laughs> and I know that sounds like a joke, like I'm making fun of you or something, but I actually mean that as the highest honor because I think there's a way of using language and words 
And I would hope that Christianity at its best does this, instead of being just poor talkative Christianity and being noisy, that at its best, we use words to talk to the world, with the world. It opens up relationship. It opens up the silent spaces. A bird is singing in relationship to the trees and to other birds for mating and for calling out and dancing and doing what it does with the world. We could easily use language to keep people away as, as noise, at just talking so we don't have to think, so we don't have to confront the, the silence and our anxieties, so that we can just turn the TV on or the music on just to have company. And there's a place for that. I'm not being negative, like completely 100% negative. I don't want to be so dualistic. But I, there's also a way of using language that oh, invites us into the mystery, that actually speaks the mystery with the words, that actually offers the silence like the birds offer the silence to me. And I think what I've heard you describe this entire time is your process is somehow you're learning to go to those vulnerable places as, and coming back with the gifts of silence packaged in words for us so that we can hear something new. That's what it feels like when I read your work or hear you preach. And, wow. and so I wonder if that's the calling of Christianity, if the calling is somehow to incarnate God, if the incarnation is the word, make the word have flesh, invite us into relationship and into love. Let silence be a love language and actually let it be a love language as opposed to just noisy chaos with our words. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. That is so lovely. And Cassidy, do you hear how it speaks to what you were talking about earlier, I think, while you're incarnating the word? I love this idea of words that have silence in them or that, you know, hold the space for that. I love I love that you think I do that. Now I want to go do it a lot more. So, so well, thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. But I think the, I think the catch is, is if you try to do it, it won't happen. <laughs> That's the, the th one of the things I do when I teach my classes is there's this talk of what they call the paradox of intention, that if mm. you try to do something, you can't achieve it. It's like when you become self-forgetful and let go, then what it can actually arise. So... But yes, uh, just keep doing what you're doing, I think, is, you know, be Barbara and we'll be fine. <laughs> Barbara, I also think it speaks to the posture that you're bringing to create the words. This posture of vulnerability and honesty grounds us. It brings us to the earth, right? All these things that you're mentioning. It takes us 
to the to the rawness of grief with with other people that rootedness that connects us through all the other roots just as the trees are connected to each other and i think that posture of being vulnerable and honest and real and truthful yeah just grounds us and takes us to create that rhythm of silence and words so so thank you for that mm. you know what you and i and maybe everyone here gets to figure out is if you are those things vulnerable you you're woundable and so then how do you carry that in a way that's not self-pitiful and etc so again i love this conversation because i'm gaining so much to think about but to be vulnerable is to be woundable and then how do you carry that publicly in a way that's not wasting the privilege. Yeah. And we're in the season of Lent and Easter where we watch the vulnerable one walk to death and do it in a way, you know, I mean, the the model of Christianity, of, of Christ being vulnerable and open and humble as to speak those words, as, as Cassidy said, that, that stance and not to make yourself pitiful and not to make it all about you and not to fall into despair and yet to keep loving, to keep being open, to keep being vulnerable. I mean, wow. Talk about divine. That, that is not, if, if I ever do that in my life, it is not of me. It's definitely of grace. Mm-hmm. You know, you took me in what you just said to the silence of depression, which came up a lot with the darkness book as well. Uh, because that's a different kind of silence. That is a very scary silence to me. And yet you also touched the place of recovery as I have known it, which is remembering I am not the only one. <laughs> I am not the only one, you know, and, and to move more and more and more in my silence in those darker places was to recover my communion with everyone else, including the Christ the one who walked the earth and the one who's embodied in human beings. At any rate, that was redemption for me to move into the community of those who have been that frightened and that silenced in another way, you know, not in a a blissful way, but a dismantling way. The healing is to remember you're not alone in that. You just said it better than I did, but there you go. I don't know about that. I think what you just said was pretty amazing. I think you just said it better than I said. <laughs> I teach at a university um, and uh, I'm my background, I've been trained as in comparative theology. So when you wrote Holy Envy, I was I tell everybody I, she wrote the book. I'm envious because she wrote the book. I wish I wrote <laughs> because this is the kind of work I do all the time is doing comparing and contrasting. And how does Christianity learn from these other traditions and yet not conflate them, not ignore the hard questions, not, not ignore any of that, learn from the others, but not equate them, uh, equate all the traditions as one thing and, and disrespect them in any way for, by doing that. So I think my thing is what, what did you find uh, the most helpful about studying other traditions as a Christian? Why, why, why was that book important for you to write? Gosh, it was important to write in honor of the students 
and in honor of the hosts of the field trips who were the most hospitable people in the world. I could not, if I turned it around, imagine many of them bringing a group into churches I knew and being welcomed the way we were welcomed. So I learned that to be a guest, speaking of always a guest, was so much more important than being a host because the host has the power in a way. But to be a guest is to be vulnerable, Cassidy, and woundable and stupid. And where do I put my feet and what? I was supposed to take my shoes off. Oh, I'm so sorry. So uh, there was a lot of that in wanting to write that book, to name all that. But I think as Christian, now this is going to be tough, but what I decided was if my religion did not serve the enrichment of my being human. In other words, if it didn't increase my neighborliness, if it didn't increase my fellow feeling, then I wasn't sure <laughs> why I was bothering with it. So as I think a grandson of Gandhi said, what we have most in common is not our religion, but our humanity. And I learned the ways in which Christianity, the parts of Christianity that served my relationship to other people and the part of my Christianity that tried to sever my relationships with other people. And I think I put somewhere in that book, Jesus taught me if I have to choose between my religion and my neighbor, I should choose my neighbor. I, I took a world religions course at my seminary just before lockdown last March. And naturally Holy Envy was a part of that, of that class. And we did go on field trips again, just before lockdown and even the hospitali hospitality amid navigating pandemic rules because people were beginning to kind of get this idea of, you know, at least hand sanitizing everywhere and, and those kinds of things was just life-changing um, to be a part of that and experience that hospitality. And I think one thing that Christianity fails at is the way that it holds its its ideas of certitude so closely that it doesn't it's not willing to step into discomfort and i think you know barbara you you made the point of being vulnerable and being vulnerable includes getting uncomfortable and making mistakes and just continuing to show up to each other as humans and so i'm really touched by by that and obviously that book had a really great impact on me and the entire class so thank you for your work Oh, I'm so happy. Wonderful. Barbara, um, one of the questions that we love to ask all of our conversation partners is um, what we lovingly call your silence hero. And what we mean by that is just any person could be somebody famous or you know, a family member, somebody living, somebody dead, but somebody who for you really embodies what silence is and silence is promise and possibility and how that has impacted your life. So do you have a silence hero? I wish I did. <laughs> you make me think I need one. Um, I, but you, the question does take me back to college so long ago now. And Mayor Baba, M-E-H-E-R, Baba was a thing. I think he had just died. He, he lived from 1894 to 1969, and he was silent for the last 44 years of his life. All I remember is as a loquacious 19-year-old being amazed that someone 
would be quiet for 44 years. And when asked, he said that wasn't a spiritual discipline. It was in his service to being a universal person. And I guess hand gestures and, and things like that helped him speak beyond his language. So, um, so I'll claim Thomas Merton. That sounds good, don't you think? I'll just claim Thomas Merton. I think that's respectable. <laughs> You could claim the trees. <laughs> That's right. I could mm. claim the trees. I think the trees win. Yeah. Cassidy, Cassidy, you just gave me the much better answer. I claim the trees. So Barbara, on this podcast, we love poetry and we often invite our guests to share a poem that they may or may not associate with silence. Would you happen to have anything you would like to share with us? Yes, I had about 10, but I got it down to this one. <laughs> And it's by a man I met in, in the UK named Malcolm Geet, G-U-I-T-E. So it, it's a little book published by Canterbury Press, uh, but he read to me in a chapel while I was there. And here's the poem he read called The Singing Bowl. Begin the song exactly where you are. Remain within the world of which you're made. Call nothing common in the earth or air. Accept it all and let it be for good. Start with the very breath you breathe in now. This moment's pulse, this rhythm in your blood and listen to it ringing soft and low. Stay with the music. Words will come in time. Slow down your breathing. Keep it deep and slow. Become an open singing bowl whose chime is richness rising out of emptiness and timelessness resounding into time. And when the heart is full of quietness, begin the song exactly where you are. This has just been a delightful conversation. Um, thank you so much, Barbara, for your time and your attention and your willingness to step into these questions with us. Um, we, um, we on, on Encountering Silence, we feel like we're, we're some of the luckiest people because we get to talk to such amazing conversation partners. So we really appreciate uh, this time. Thank you. I feel the same way about you. It was a quartet of brilliance and you all have a wonderful day. All right. <laughs> same. You Thank do you the so same. much. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters 
and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.